What's up, Teaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. This week, I am telling you the story of Liesl Amen, and this is episode nine. Can you believe it? No, I can't. But how long have you been practicing enunciating Liesl <laughs> Amen before we started recording? A really long time. <laughs> I had to listen to multiple people say it in different interviews, so I didn't screw it up. How did you initially think that you said their name? It doesn't matter at this point, but I am so, (laughs) I'm so afraid to say almond, you know, like the nut, (laughs) instead of almond. Is this person a woman or a man? It's a woman. It's a woman? Okay. Yes, but I want you to know I really practice and I will probably still screw it up. So I'm I'm really (laughs) curious to know how you thought it sounded before. It doesn't matter at this point. (laughs) Did you say least? Almond. You know, I'm sure halfway through we'll probably think what I really thought it was because I'm sure it'll come out because I have to (laughs) pre-read it in my head and I'm still going to screw it up. So, Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yes. So on November 12th, 1997, a 20-year-old woman was arrested for the brutal murder of a highly decorated Denver, Colorado police officer. Oh, it's going to be one of these types of stories. It is. Okay. He was a married father with a young daughter at the time. But before we dive into this case, let me tell you what the problem is. Already? Yeah, we're already starting off problematic. Oh, okay. That was quick. <laughs> we jumped jumped right to it. Just escalated really quickly. <laughs> At the time that he was shot in the head, she was seated in the back of the police car, had her seatbelt on, and was handcuffed. Wait, the person that committed the crime? The person that was arrested for the crime, yes. Let me go back. So seated in the back of the police car. Okay. Seatbelted in, okay, and handcuffed. When he, when the police officer was shot in the head, absolutely. And there was just the two of them in the vehicle. I'm assuming we're gonna get there. Oh, okay. But I just want to give you this is how the story is starting. So okay. it's pretty. So it's a pretty wild ride. Just keep that simple fact in mind. Yes, and okay. we will touch on that again. Great, got it. Boulder, Colorado, which is 29 miles away from Denver, Colorado. The year prior, in December of 1996, had just gone through a whirlwind of national news. This was the time that the John Benet Ramsey case began. Do you know the John Benet Ramsey case? <laughs> I made myself a little side note there to ask you because if you are not familiar I with that you. case, number one, you need to get out. <laughs> I knew, and you. we need to cover that because that is like true crime 101 i knew you were gonna ask me um i know the name and i know it has to do with a little girl that did like pageants or modeling or something like that but past that no i have no idea what actually happened (laughs) i'm sure she disappeared and whatever per true crime 101 listen you want to talk about conspiracy theories there is a lot behind that case but we are definitely going to cover john benet ramsey uh, that is probably like a three-part case in itself it's a long one i feel like it's gonna be a boring case but that's fine don't you come in here and (laughs) insult that case i'm sorry john benet ramsey's family i didn't i didn't mean it like that that's not what i was saying i apologize Two years after the case I'm telling you today, in 1999, the shooting at Columbine High School took place in Middleton, Colorado. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yep. And then, of course, in July of 2012, a mass shooting took place inside a Century 16 movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. I think 
Yes, I was about to say it was during the um, the Batman movie, right? It came yep. out. Yep, during the screening of The Dark Knight Rises. So it was the movie premiere. Yes. Um, in that case, 12 people were killed and 70 others were injured. 58 of those injuries were related to gunfire. Okay. It was the deadliest shooting in Colorado since Columbine. This number was later surpassed by the 107 victims of the 2016 Orlando nightclub shooting. Okay. Yes. So all in all, Colorado has definitely seen its fair share of tragedy. That still makes me sad about the Orlando nightclub. But look at you. You know a little true crime. You knew about the Batman premiere. I did. That one was a big deal. It was a big deal. But listen, I it's because I like Batman. Fun oh fact God. about me <laughs> is I do like many nerdy things. But if you ask me in person, for all of those that know who I am, I will deny it. <laughs> So it's fine. Hey, I mean, that's why we knew about it, but we don't know John Benet Ramsey, okay? I'm sorry. Priorities. <laughs> I am sorry too. At least I know what a Grand Prix is. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Words are hard. <laughs> Lisa Allman grew up in a very loving middle class family in Middleton, Colorado. And like I said earlier, Middleton is 333 miles away from Denver. Okay. Lisa's family was. His her her father was a plumbing shop foreman at the local college, and her mother processed insurance claims. Her parents divorced when she was eleven, but her parents did a great job co-parenting, and she was surrounded by plenty of love and support. I love that. Lisa was described as being warm and funny. Everyone that knew her loved being around her. Lisa, when asked, described herself as hippie-like. She enjoyed going hiking, reading, taking pictures. Her favorite hobby was to work on stained glass pictures with her mother. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. It's a really cool hobby. Yeah. Lisa really enjoyed middle school and high school and excelled in art. When the choice came to go to college, she was very conflicted. She had no idea what she wanted to pursue. She decided that she was going to take a year off after high school. Upon graduating high school, she moved to Alaska with a friend. Oh, that's very random. <laughs> it is. During her time there, she worked on a fishing boat and lived in a cabin that had no electricity or running water. Okay. When Liesl came back to Colorado, she told her family members that she felt her time in Alaska was really life-defining. To no surprise, her year off from school turned into several. Mm -hmm. She worked odd jobs while living back in Middleton and fell into a rut. Her friends around her were in college or getting married and having children. She felt like she had no direction in her life. She made the decision that she wanted to take another adventure, but this time closer to home. She was trying to find her place and was in search of where she would belong. She packed up her car and headed into the town of Pine. Pine is located 38 miles from Middleton. There had been a massive forest fire in the small town, and the town was trying to convince people to move back and help plant more trees that had been lost during the fire. It was the perfect opportunity for someone that loved nature. Mm -hmm. When Liesl first got to the area to begin working, she was staying in a nearby house with two of her friends. A few weeks into helping rebuild the community, one of her friends introduced her to a man named Sean Cheever. Uh, <laughs> I want you to know that took a long time to look about where to. It looks like Cleaver. I feel like that that's where man. we were going. Cheever. Cheever. Okay. Sean Cheever, like overachiever. <laughs> got it. Oh, I like that. That's a good way to remember it. Yeah. I need to make myself little notes here in my was, script. Was he an actual overachiever? Or did his last well, name just go to waste? We'll see how you feel at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> Sean was also working on the Pine Project as a logger. The two instantly hit it off and began dating shortly after. Liesl decided not long after to move out of the house she was staying in with her friends and into the room with Sean. The new location was much like her adventure in Alaska, 
no running water, and no electricity. The location they were staying at was described as a hostel area. By hostel, do you mean as, I'm just, I want to, I just want to make sure I clarify. I mean the living quarter hostel, okay? Okay, so like when you go, when you travel to Europe and you stay in a hostel, but not like a malicious atmosphere. I'm just making sure I understand. Did I pronounce that one correctly? You did, but but there's two types of hostels. Yes, thank you for clarifying. All right. Most of the kids that came to help with the trees were all staying in one cabin that was super run down. There were 11 different rooms to stay in, but the building was falling apart. Most of the cabin was covered with tarps since most of the building was falling apart, like I said. Mm -hmm. There was only one place to shower, one kitchen, and one bathroom for all 11 rooms. Great. Yeah, very close quarters. So to be honest, with all of these different kids that were staying there, it basically it basically became party central. There was a lot of drama within the group. You have all of these people that are working together, living together, partying together, and small issues started to arise within the cabin. Mm-hmm. At one point, most of them started to place a padlock on their cabin room doors since things were going missing from inside their rooms. Oh, Lisa was very infatuated with Sean. Prior to this relationship, she had only ever had one other boyfriend when she was in high school. So for a woman that was about to turn 21, it seemed that she was a little inexperienced. But she was young and she was in love. She would literally do everything for Sean, including making all of his food, going shopping for him, and buying him plenty of things. Sean was a few years older, but he played his part well in the relationship. He knew that he needed to be sweet and affectionate at first. After a few months, Sean had her wrapped around his finger. For everyone looking in, it was very obvious that Sean was using her for money and for sex. That's really unfortunate. It is, especially since she was young and thought she was in love with him and only her second relationship. It makes sense why she would act like that. Yeah, it's just, it's sad to see individuals take advantage of other individuals, you know, especially when they are either naive or very vulnerable. Right, well, and she's far away from her, well, I mean, not far away, but she's, she's away from her family. 38 miles away. Yeah, she's away from her family and working on this project. So really, Sean is all she has, in a sense, besides her friends. As the relationship continued... Liesel started to realize that Sean was not the person he pretended to be. She began to feel as though Sean was cheating on her, which what she did not realize at the time was that he, in fact, had a common-law wife. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) It thickens. He was telling his common-law wife at the time that he was away working, but of course, he was actually having a relationship on the side. And on top of that, he was actually cheating on both women with more women. Oh. Definitely okay. not an overachiever. No. Well, I mean, I guess you could say he was an overachiever. Well, really, it depends on what way you look at it. <laughs> Maybe he was a polygamist. Maybe. At heart, Maybe. Or in training. <laughs> she also learned things about his past and his character, including that he had been arrested many times previously. He had a long criminal record for things like fraud, burglary, and he even had gone to jail many times under many different names. Okay. Liesel and her friends admitted that this was a crazy time in their lives. They had gone to Pines to plant trees and be in nature, but it turned into a toxic party environment, and she found herself in a relationship with someone that had been lying to her, cheating on her, and he had somehow convinced her to spend all of her money on him. Mm -hmm. She bought him things like a snowboard, a space heater, two different speakers. She knew that she didn't want this to be her life. It was kind of like a wake-up call for her. Even though she didn't have a plan for what exactly it was that she wanted to be doing in life, she knew this wasn't it. Well, good. I'm glad she realized it at some point. (laughs) Liesl called her mother and asked her if she could move back home. 
Her family agreed that if she wasn't happy where she was, she needed to come home. She didn't want to ask her parents to come and help her move and gather her things, most of which were in Sean's room. She was embarrassed at the condition of the cabin and the life that she had been living. So instead, she enlisted the help of one of her other longtime friends. Unknown to Liesl at the time, this friend from high school had since began running with a very dangerous crowd. Her friend Demi had since began dating a guy named Dion. Okay. Dion had been heavily involved in a local group of skinheads in Denver. Dion told Liesl that he was going to bring some friends up to the cabin to help her move. The following morning, Liesl went to Taco Bell with Demi and Dion for breakfast and to meet up with two of Dion's friends that were going to assist with the move. Wait, are skinheads, those are, is that a white supremacist type group? Yes, okay. that's exactly what it is. All right, I thought it sounded familiar. The two men pulled up in a red Trans Am, and it was not known at the time, but the red Trans Am was a stolen vehicle. Both men had Nazi tattoos and swastikas that were made out of guns, as well as the words of God of Hate tattooed. They were both frequently crystal meth users and known criminals. The intentions were to go to the log cabin, gather the things out of Liesl's room, as well as take the things that she had in Sean's room. Liesl had informed all of the men that Sean had been terrible to her during the time of the relationship. This situation did not start out well. You are sending in dangerous men that are on drugs and are already very violent to go into another man's room and take items out of there. The group headed to the lodge. Besides Liesl being unaware of the car that she was riding and being stolen, she also didn't realize that the men had a car fully stocked with rifles and AR-15s, which were all fully loaded. Oh, wow. Once they arrived at the lodge, both women began moving things from her room into the car. One of the friends stood at the car as a lookout, which I feel like is not a good situation. If you're moving things, why do you have someone standing at the car as a lookout? So both women began moving things from her room into the car, but both of the guys... One so, of the so men... So one of the guys was the lookout. Yes, one okay. of the men stood at the car as a lookout, which seems a little interesting. Yes. So remember earlier when we discussed the padlocks on all of the doors, right? Yes, because things were going missing. Yes, this is where the story gets a little crazy. There is no straight answer for what actually took place. Everyone has a different account of what happened, and there is no for sure answer. What we do know for a fact is that Liesl spent a lot of time gathering things out of Sean's room. At some point during this move, but we don't know who, somebody got bolt cutters and cut the padlock on Sean's door. It was then claimed that a burglary took place right? Which makes sense. It was stated that at that point in Sean's room, items started to go missing, including the snowboard that she had purchased for him, two camcorders, two speakers, a tripod, two boxes of CDs, and an amplifier. So when you say that somebody at some point got a padlock and cut it, cut, the lock, off of, yeah, cut the lock off of Sean's door, mm -hmm. was this another door in his room that they were already moving things from? No, so they were originally moving things out of her room when she had been staying I with her see. friends, That's right? right? So she, she had has... things in both rooms. Okay, I get it now. Then somebody, we don't know who, got the bolt cutters, cut the padlock to Sean's room, okay. and then took all of those items. Okay. That makes more sense. Right. So Liesl was aware that the things that were being taken from Sean's room were not hers, but she claims that she felt like she couldn't say anything out of fear. Everything was loaded into the car and they left. A witness from the lodge stated that the red car sped away. One of Sean's friends wrote down the license plate number. Another resident of the lodge was concerned that people were taking things that didn't belong to them, so they immediately called 911 to report that they had believed a burglary was taking place. Okay. The police arrived just as the car had left. The police that responded followed the red Trans Am. Now we're involved in a police chase. 
there are a lot of things going on in this case, right? So we go from like stealing things that don't belong to us and now we're in a high-speed police chase. I just feel like her life just turned upside down in like two seconds. In an instant, right. The men were high on meth at the time and were driving insanely fast. Liesel was terrified sitting in the back seat. The police followed behind them with their sirens blaring. One of the men reached around the back seat and grabbed one of his guns. He told Liesel to grab the wheel. He leaned out of the driver's side window and began to fire his gun at police. Wow. The car veered off the road and Liesel attempted to hold the wheel and steady the car. This was a 21-mile police chase. A lot of things happened during this time frame. The car gets into a minor accident at one point. They spin and recorrect themselves and they keep going. How terrifying. Right? Many people are observing this happening on the road. Someone sees one of the men punch Liesel during all of this. They pass a school and bystanders see the passenger side door open and someone throws out a laundry basket. Okay. (laughs) Liesel later reported that she was trying to escape the car, but the laundry basket had fallen out and she was pulled back into the car. So because I said earlier that she was sitting in the back seat, she was obviously, I don't know if she climbed up to the front seat and attempted to go out the passenger seat or how. No, I bet you Trans Am, it would have been a two car or two door car. I bet you she attempted to open it from the back seat and crawl through that little like crevice where your feet go and the driver's seat. Right. Well, that clearly did not happen for her. And it was a mess. The cruiser that had been shot at backed off from the chase The group drove back to Demi and Dion's apartment. What they didn't know was that a Denver police officer had been listening to the police chase on his radio all day. He watched the group pull into the apartment and park the Trans Am. They watched as the group pulled in and then waited for backup. Liesel made a run up for the apartment door. The men were close behind, guns in hand, and frantic while they tried to get the apartment door unlocked. I'm just confused why she would run towards the apartment. With them. Yeah, and wouldn't try to run away. Right. If you were so terrified, you would think that you would run away. Well, I guess at the same time, though, they had guns and she probably would have thought they would have shot her in the back. Right. And maybe that's why she didn't run. Yeah. The police met them in the hallway of the apartment. The police instructed them to stop what they were doing, slowly make their way out of the entrance, put their hands up in the air. Liesel complied. She was yanked out of the hallway thrown onto the ground, and handcuffed. The officer placed his knee on her back and was calling her a bitch. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) That's what I thought when I was researching it. When nothing has changed since, what is this, 1996? 97, yes. Mm -hmm. Liesel was being walked to the police cruiser. Two other officers had arrived at the scene and were going to get the man and place him in another police cruiser. The men quickly ran down the apartment hallway. They are running through the apartment complex for cover and have all of their weapons with them. So just setting the scene for you, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess somewhere between arresting her and walking her to the car, I'm not sure why you would just leave the men in the hallway, but of course they're going to take off. So they have these guns and they took off because the police were more concerned about arresting her. Oh, it doesn't make any sense to me. No, and especially with her being a, what, 21 woman who's, I'm sure she was smaller in frame. I, I don't know why it would take the full attention of two, I'm assuming they're male cops, uh, instead of going after the armed white suppressed. Right, it seems it seems a little weird that you would leave the two men at the door, and I'm not sure if that thought didn't go through their mind, like, they're gonna run. But I mean, they're, they're fully armed, and now they're running through an apartment complex. Mm-hmm. So Liesel is handcuffed, 
seatbelted into the back of one of the police cruisers, and she is driven into a different parking lot to get out of the apartment complex parking lot to avoid a more dangerous situation. Yeah. So now you've got these two police officers chasing these other two guys. No, no. The guys are still running, right? So they're still running through the parking lot. You only have two police officers there, and they have placed her in a vehicle, and they have driven her to a different apartment complex because they were waiting on backup, right? I see. So random men just running through with all these weapons. Sounds like a great situation. (laughs) It does. What they should have done was have some more concern for all of the people and the families that live in this apartment complex instead of having men running around like that that are highly dangerous. You know, I didn't even think about that. That is very sad. Right. It's horrible. So the parking lot, in my opinion, should have been blocked off or something to stop people from going in there. But again, this is 1997 and pre-mass shooter chaos that America is now unfortunately used to wasn't a thing then. Yeah. So I'm sure that there just was a lack of training or knowledge of how to handle situations like this. Right. So the officers weren't trained in what they were facing, which totally makes sense. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of unknowns and they had almost gone into this blindly because they weren't fully aware of what exactly the situation was. And honestly, the situation was just chaos. Yeah. This whole case is really chaotic. Okay. While in the car, the two officers that arrested Liesel are asking further questions regarding the men, how she met them what kind of weapons they have, but she wasn't providing any kind of information. They felt that she was stalling and giving them nothing, basically. Well, I'm sure that she was terrified, and the fact that they probably thought that she was an accomplice when she was actually a victim, and she's young, why would she, she's not going to be able to respond right on cue. (laughs) So that was actually my next question was, Was she in shock or was she purposely trying to stall? Why would she try to stall somebody that had obviously hit her and was threatening her and making her a part of the situation that she never anticipated in the first place? Right. Well, and we don't know how the conversation with police went. We don't know how demanding they were of these answers, if they were getting upset that she wasn't responding. I'm sure after putting their knee on her back and calling her the B word that, you know. they She probably didn't want to talk to them. Yeah. Right. So, mind you, she had been knocked to the ground, arrested, and had never been in trouble before. So maybe she was in no state of mind to speak. Yeah, of course. We also don't know if she was threatened by the men to not speak, and maybe she was in fear for her own safety. I'm sure it was a combination of all things. Right. Well, and I'm sure it was happening so fast, because I feel like when I was doing all the research on this case, we were jumping from one extreme to the next. And it's a lot of information. So I can only imagine being in the situation, how fast everything was going. Absolutely. Dozens of Denver police officers finally arrived. A man with an assault rifle opened fire on police, and now they don't know where he is. So one of the guys. Yep. One of the guys in the apartment complex opens fire, but they don't know where he is. The public safety and their own safety were obviously all at risk. And now that we care about the public safety. (laughs) Yeah. Got it. So this apartment complex had 22 buildings. So it's very large. Yeah. And the men, like I said, they don't know where they are. So they're basically just running around the complex. Mm -hmm. They also don't have time to alert the apartment complex of what was happening. Everything is happening so fast at this time. One of the men, Mathis Janing, had... Is is it Mathis or Matias? You know what, Matias? (laughs) What do you think that last name is? Janig. Janig. It looks like it's German. So (laughs) Janig. Maybe I should just stop naming people. Matthias. Matthias. Yeah. I'm so sorry. 
Yeah. <laughs> Words are hard. We're going to get through this. Uh, so he had worked his way into one of the building entranceways, and he began to fire. Officers started to hit the ground. They were running into bushes, trying to take cover as best they could. Mm-hmm. All officers at that time began to open fire as well. Oh, goodness. So bullets are flying from a dozen officers, as well as from the men. Glass and dust were flying everywhere. Bullets were going through windows and into the side of the building. Oh my gosh, do we know if anybody was, like, any of the families or any of the other residents were injured? So luckily, no one was injured, but can you imagine being in that situation that you have no idea what's going on outside and there's just... I can only imagine how many bullets were flying. Yeah. You have that many people opening fire, like, it must have been crazy. Mm-hmm. Residents started to take cover inside their apartment buildings and prayed that they didn't get hit. During the chaos, an officer thought he could see exactly where the bullets were being fired from. Okay. The officer, Bruce Vanderjat, moved forward. He was an 11-year police veteran and highly decorated. He was very well respected and very loved in the community. His wife's name was Anna, and they had just had a daughter together. Okay. Bruce made his way into the apartment building hallway. He peeked around the wall of the entrance, and before he could even react... Bullets started flying, and he was hit in the head. He stayed standing, and the officers behind him thought he was okay. But then his body started to sway in a very unnatural way. Bruce fell into the officer behind him, and it revealed his devastating head wound that he had suffered. The head wound was massive, and he had wall fragments stuck inside his face from the impact of the bullets. Oh, no. He was killed in the line of duty that day. The officers backed up at this point. They all knew. Matthias. <laughs> yes, thank you so much. I should just have you read the names from now on, honestly. <laughs> they all knew that he was behind the wall. A hell of bullets continued, and at that point, nine more bullets hit the body of Officer Bruce Vanderjaft. The bullets eventually stopped. A SWAT team was called in because they had the exact location of the suspect. They stuck a mirror on the inside of the wall, and they received their answer. They could see that he was dead. He had been hit with a bullet that belonged to the Denver Police Department, and during the final shootout, he had run out of bullets and crawled over to the body of Officer Bruce and took his service weapon, and he shot himself under his chin. Okay, so the Matias is the one that was shot, and he, after shooting this decorated officer and killing him, then he, at that point, went over, took this officer's gun, and then shot himself under the chin? Yes, because he ran out of bullets. So initially, when they discovered that he had been shot with the Denver Police Department bullets, they probably thought that they had killed him. But because of the self-inflicted gun wound, they could tell that obviously he shot himself under the chin. That's unfortunate that he took out a decorated officer. That's very sad. Yes. News of the shootout was all over radio stations and the news broadcast stations at the time. The citizens of Denver were hooked. The officers had been in a shootout with a known skinhead, and there was an officer down. I can only imagine how this case is going to end. (laughs) We're going to take a few more wild turns. Oh, no. More bullets had been fired during this instance than ever before in Denver history, and that fact still stands today. When the officers that were holding Liesel in a different parking lot in their cruiser received word that an officer had been killed, they told Liesel, you are going down. You are going down for murder. Yeah. The Denver Police Department was looking for someone to blame for the tragedy, and there was Liesel. She had been read her rights and was taken down to the police station. During her interview, the district attorney asked Liesel if she felt like she was being forced into giving any of these answers, 
or if she was only giving answers because she felt that she was forced by police at the time. Liesel answered no to both. She did herself zero favors at this point. She was not clear about what happened. She was not giving any information about who she was with or how the day progressed. She was giving police nothing to work with. Well, I mean, she didn't even know who the two guys were, essentially. So, and I'm sure that, you know, the death of the police officer came in. I can only imagine what everything was going through. But, I mean, being asked by the district attorney if she felt like she was being forced to provide any information and then saying no. Okay, but I... (sighs) this people are going to get very upset about this. it's okay let's let's do this you know for a fact that we know through a lot of documentaries and and things like that right so what was that one in wisconsin making a murder right Stephen to, avery yes to where we know that there are officers unfortunately especially in the episode we covered last time that are not there to protect and serve they are there to find a scapegoat And they're going to intimidate and interrogate whatever scapegoat that they can fit to go down for that crime. Right. Absolutely. But at the same time, I mean, it wasn't an officer asking her, you know, do you feel like you're being forced? But yes, you are right. It is a district attorney. And who's to say how they responded? No, I'm saying... You have no idea the things that we don't know what they said to her no, we on the way to the station. And I'm sure that they also threatened her, especially because one of their officers and brothers in the line of duty were killed. Right. And somebody has to be blamed for that. I totally yes. get that. So during the interview, she told police it was all very blurry to her on what had happened and that she just wanted it to be over. Throughout the whole interview, she never gave up any names It seems that she might have been scared and wasn't giving up anyone's identity. But then again, I go back to she's not really helping herself in this situation because she has the police against her and they want someone to pay for killing this officer. Like you said, their brother, right? I don't think she probably knew their names. At one point during the interview, she asked if she brought she had been asked if she brought the men to the cabin to be the muscle and get back at her ex-boyfriend, Sean. My question is. Where's her friend during all of this? Did the friend just, like, fall off the face of the earth? (laughs) I totally forgot that the friend existed until just now. We'll get there. She later repeats the statement back to police, and then she ends up saying, two people are dead because of me. Oh, no. And when police asked her what she meant, she said, it's because I wanted to get a little muscle to help me get my stuff and get back at Sean. So she just repeated what they had coached her to say. Exactly. Okay, that's right. Later, this obviously would really hurt her case. I think, yeah, yeah, it would hurt anybody's case. Absolutely. She basically answered the questions that police were asking her just in different words and a few hours later during the interview. So definitely coached on what she was saying there. I get that aspect. No matter what, though, I think she was going to get the book thrown at her. I don't think it would have made any difference no matter what she could have said, right? Eventually, the whole group was identified, and one by one, they were all arrested and brought in for questioning. Mm -hmm. Sean Cheever was also contacted at this time. He told police that he had nothing in his room that belonged to Liesel and that she had no reason to be in there. That was why he placed a padlock on the door of his bedroom and that she did steal his items. However, nine days later, police arrested Cheever accused of theft forgery, criminal impersonation, and drug possession. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, quite the list. Mm -hmm. When officers searched the hotel room that he had been staying, they reported finding marijuana, 
four stolen purses, and three checkbooks, including one in the name of Liesl Almon. Oh, Sean. Not an overachiever. No. <laughs> a terrible criminal yes. of all things. At the end of the interviews, the DA filed their charges. Demi and her boyfriend Dion were charged with first-degree burglary and an attempt to commit burglary. The other man that was involved, right, because there was two men that were running around yes. the apartment complex. Yeah, yeah, the one that got shot himself. Yes, and then there was another man. Yes. So his friend, once he had been found, Stephen Dupree, was charged with a lot more, including possession of a firearm and a number of parole violations. Liesl Allman was charged with menacing, first-degree burglary, attempt to commit first-degree burglary, assault, which came from when she was in the car while police were on the high-speed chase and she was the one holding the steering wheel. They got her on assault for that. Okay. How that comes to be, I'm not really sure. But she was also charged with first-degree murder. What? Out of that whole group. First-degree murder. I told you, we were going to take some turns on this case. Oh, this is going to make me really angry in a minute, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. Oh, lovely. So, eventually, her charge went from first-degree murder to felony first-degree murder. Wow. So, the crime of felony murder occurs when someone is killed during a felony charge. So, in this case, the crime was burglary. Okay. So, whether or not the death of the officer was intended, everyone who commits the felony, as well as anyone who is involved during the felony occurring, including those who are physically absent while the death occurred, are all equally responsible. This is a state law of Colorado. So I guess my question is, did the other two that were living also get charged with first-degree felony murder? Please say no. <laughs> say no. You're getting a little upset. <laughs> say no. Did, did they get charged with first-degree murder? So I'm going to tell you that they did not because, of course, like most cases, deals are made. Uh, so because she didn't take a deal in the very beginning, because I'm sure that she was shocked, she's young, she didn't throw them under the bus, but of course they turned on her and said everything was her fault. Possibly. Oh, this we'll, is like a movie. We'll get there as it keeps going. It definitely is. There, There's a lot. Is this law still held in the state of Colorado? Like, is this still a current law? Do you know? I believe so. Oh. And honestly, I'm not sure how many other states have a law similar to this, but... I'm sure Texas is very similar. I would assume, yes. Well, I would not be surprised. No, we can visit Denver and Colorado, but we cannot. <laughs> we cannot live there. Yeah. Well, I mean, unless you plan on committing a crime, I, I think we might be okay. And that, that is true. But, you know, I who knows? I could be kidnapped and something could happen and then I'm going to go down for murder. So, Right. Hey. You never know. Lovely. The concept of felony murder is very controversial, but is it something that is needed to hold people accountable for participating in felony crimes, even though she wasn't the one that pulled the trigger? I think it's going to be a, all right, so if I'm coming at this from a neutral point of view, right? I think if, in this case, I don't agree with it, obviously, because I feel that she was a victim, but in a different scenario, as in, all parties are mutually agreeing to commit a crime or a felony crime or whatever it is and things happen and somebody is murdered, then absolutely. However, I do think that there are always going to be different variables and, and situations within each type of crime. And so I think it's just going to be a case by case. Whereas, unfortunately, with her being a victim, I... I think it's very unfortunate and I'm very disappointed. I knew you'd be super into this case, though. I'm very upset right now. 
So how this goes down is the DA is stating that Liesl is the one that organized the burglary. She is the mastermind behind this, and therefore she is legally responsible. Yes. Because we have to go back to whether or not she was coached or wasn't coached. Okay, we have to go back to the statement being made that she needed muscle to get back at her ex-boyfriend. Whether or not that was legitimate or not, who knows? Yes, because let's pin these heavy, heavy crimes on somebody that has no criminal history. Right, no criminal history. And I'm not previously. saying she's I'm not saying she's the mastermind behind this. I'm not saying that she organized the burglary. I don't think she went there with intentions to steal the items. We're all four individuals involved in this uh Caucasian. Honestly, I'm I'm not sure. Okay. I would assume so because they are skinheads. So yes. Well, obviously, I mean the yes, the two guys would be Caucasian. I'm assuming yes. her friend Dion. Yeah, her friend is Caucasian. She's Caucasian. Is Le- so Liesel is Caucasian. Yes. Well. Okay. So all but Dion is a skinhead as well. So well, I'm I assume he's also yeah. That's what I'm saying. If he's a skinhead, right. then yes, he's going to be Caucasian. Right. So I don't know that. Yeah. Do you remember when? Side note, everybody. So sorry. Do you remember when we were at uh, one of the lakes on vacation and we were next to a group of white supremacists? (laughs) So just so everybody is aware, Brittany is Caucasian. I obviously am not. I am half Japanese and half Korean. And we were on vacation just having a great day by the beach. And then we realized that the this group of white supremacists and their spouses were next to us, which, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's allowed to live their life. You know, no judgments. That's that's fine. As long as you respect our space, it's cool. Um, they did not respect our space and they got upset by my ethnicity. <laughs> Basically your existence, let's be they, honest. They were very <laughs> upset by it. So I, I just find these types of groups hilarious. Anyway, so, moving on. Let me add another complicated layer to this chaotic case. Great. In the days and weeks that followed the deaths, things did not settle down in Denver. The 20-mile police chase and the shootout terrified the residents of Denver, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. People from the apartment started to come forward to discuss how scared they were when bullets were flying in their parking lot. Yeah. But this was not a one-time instance. The skinheads of Denver started causing chaos for the police department. On Tuesday, November 18th of 1997, two skinheads terrorized a West African immigrant who was 38 years old, a husband, and a father. He was waiting at a bus stop so that he could go into work. There was a witness at the bus stop. Okay. Okay. He was beaten, choked, and then shot. The men, of course, did not want to leave a witness behind, so they shot her. Oh, wow. She did not die, and she ended up being paralyzed for the rest of her life. The skinheads were later found and convicted of first-degree murder. One received 20 years, and one received 12 years. Interesting. During their police interview, one of the men told police that he felt the man did not belong and that he was doing the world a favor. He compared himself to being the god for colored people. He was 19 years old. I I always find the psychology behind groups, especially like white supremacy, so incredibly interesting, especially when you look at past crimes. So, you know, like the Baptist church shooting, um, the one that was 
shot at one of the, I can't remember, it was another church of faith. Right. Um, it seems to always be extremely 19, 20, 21 year old Caucasian men. And I always find it interesting with these type of groups because obviously they have very violent intent and right. their intent is to harm anybody that is not Caucasian. Even though side note, you know, if we were to DNA test anybody in a white supremacist group, I think they would be very disappointed to find <laughs> that they do have some type of heritage of color. Anyway, they would be mortified and it would be wonderful to see. <laughs> but I I think that these type of groups are huge magnets for these really young men and women um, because they probably come from really broken backgrounds right. and they might be loners or they might just be different. And for whatever reason, society has obviously rejected them. Yeah. You know, I think it's just the main lure as to why people go into gangs. Right. right? It's it's a family they draw you in. They tell you all the right things. Yeah, you feel like you're accepted, that you have these quote-unquote friends. I think you're groomed, and they don't realize that they're being groomed. And then they turn them into these puppets, and they do really horrible things. And it's really unfortunate to see, because I think under different circumstances, if these individuals have been given an opportunity, you know, to go another way with support and caring and love, we would see very different outcomes in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a horrible situation for everyone involved. Anybody 